Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 179th episode of the Atlas Society Ask. My name is Lawrence Olivo. I am the associate editor at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in, in fun and creative ways, such as through our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and creative social media content. Tonight, we have a special webinar as I am joined by CEO of Sociedad Atlas, Antonella Marti, and Atlas Society Senior Fellow Robert Trzinski for a conversation about the objectivist perspective on nationalism, how it's embraced in different countries, and if we have time, we'll get to some other current event topics such as Mark Andreessen's Techno-Optimist yes. Manifesto. So we're going to, we have an hour. So we will try to save some time here and there for audience questions. So whether you're on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube, please put your uh, questions in the comment section. We'll try to get to as many as we can. And with that out of the way, I'd like to pass things over to Rob to get start things off. Thank you very much, Rob. Uh, thanks so much, Lawrence. Uh, okay, we got a lot to go over, um, a lot of things going on in the world. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to broach was this topic of nationalism, because this is a, a major sort of global trend recently of uh, nationalist populist uh, politicians coming up, invoking the, you know, the making America great again or making some other country great again. And I wanted to, one thing I want to lead with Antonella is we had a conversation a while back that I thought uh, was very interesting because I've recently written for Atlas Society, a pocket guide to socialism. And in America, we have this very insular perspective on things. We tend to think of everything in the world is is sorted around our our own little internal politics and our internal history and our obsessions. Like you know, we have the the, the this attack in Israel, this war going on in Israel, and we sort it into uh, basically you know. Uh, people of color versus white people, you know, as if that's the issue, you know, that we have this conflict going back to 2000, 3000 years in the Middle East, but we sort it through the lens of our racial politics here in America. And I think there's something similar that happens with socialism. We think of socialism as being, oh, that's Bernie Sanders. That's the thing of the left. And the conversation we had was about how socialism is conceived differently uh, in the rest of the world, and particularly in Latin America. Mm hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Lawrence, for, for having me. Um, so this is this is a very important point of view because I think for a long time we have been talking only about, you know, the problems related to socialism or communism um, and even more in countries like, um, you know, Argentina, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, all these uh, countries that have been suffering from from bad ideas and, and and collectivism, so we have been talking a lot about about socialism and communism and and, and its dangers. Um, and as you said, I I see that many times people compare American socialists um, when it comes to politics to some Latin American uh, socialists or or populists when when it comes to you know this these ideas for example like like Hugo Chavez or even Nicolas Maduro so I don't know if this is this could be like a like a like a question or like an open question for for us but um, like why can we say or how can we approach um, this specifically this this idea and how how ideologies um have different meanings 
when it comes to a different country. Like socialism can mean one thing in Argentina um, and socialism probably means something else in countries like, like the US, right? Um, in countries like Argentina, for example, right now, the what we call the, the, the left or um, the, the communist party, right? The, the, the politicians that call themselves socialists, they are against the, um, the, the our, our actual um, president, Alberto, Alberto Fernandez. He's, you know, a protectionist and, and related to all these Peronist ideas um, that, that influenced Argentina uh, since the 1940s. But they are opposed to some protectionists and some uh, other, you know, left-wing leaders. But when you see, for example, Nicolás Maduro, and when you hear his speeches or the things that he talks about, I mean, it again, it's homeland or that. Right, it's basically um, this this is a specific problem because maybe we need to focus a little bit more on nationalism instead of only talking about socialism or or communism, um, because I I kind I try to identify like the real the real problem the real uh, threat that 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 we have uh, right now in the world. Like you said, there's a, a global trend. When it comes to to these ideas or these collectivist ideas, mm -hmm. so I think the problem is nationalism, nationalism from the left and nationalism from the right. Um, like both both sides, I feel like and I see like they are using the same narrative. So again, is it something we need to? start doing like trying to focus a little bit more on nationalism instead of only talking about you know socialism and and and, and how bad those ideas were because that that actually happened i mean the, the destruction that we can see all the the, the victims of, of communism and socialism but when it comes to like the global trend and the real problem would you say that maybe we can start talking about nationalism from the left and the right yeah, well I, I one question one aspect of that i think that i don't think nationalism and socialism are really two separate issues when you think about it because uh i think it's somebody i i talked to somebody recently i think it may have been vanessa who was saying that uh you know talking about maduro and and these you know these threats from the 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 communist left he said but there isn't a single opposition party that doesn't have the word socialist in its name yeah. right so and and socialism became so universally established that you're basically you're just facing you're facing variations on socialism that there are more left-wing variations in the rhetoric and ones that are more right-wing in the rhetoric but socialism is at the beneath them and and that's one thing that i so when i did my pocket guide to socialism one of the things i i was trying to say well what is socialism what you know what's the defining characteristic of socialism and one of the fascinating things i've discovered is that socialism was did not have any clear economic theory to it uh for like decades you know it was the communists who came along marx and engels come along and they give it a very clear economic theory but before that socialism had a much wider meaning it simply meant society takes precedence over the individual it meant the subordination of the individual to society as a whole so it referred to collectivism as a politics and also collectivism as a morality 
And it's only later that it took this very sort of specific, tend to take this very specific sort of Marxist, you know, workers control the means of production, that kind of left-wing economics. But it is actually a much wider idea and it has other implementations other than what we think of as sort of doctrinaire Marxism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm even thinking a little bit about the concepts, right? When it comes to concepts, when it comes to socialism, nationalism, uh, liberalism, for example, or, or even objectivism, like how some specific ideas can mean something for you and mean something different for me. Um, and, and something that calls my attention right now is, is you know, the, the use of, of, the, of the term or the concept um, liberalism or classical liberalism. Liberalism in the U.S. means that you are, you, you know, you, your ideas tend to uh, be more lefty, right? And in, in countries like Argentina or, or in Latin America, it means that you are, you know, a little bit more center, I don't know, center right because I don't like, you know, relating. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it generally means means right. free market or Thatcherite. Yeah, even. Exactly. Exactly. So so again, we can see this like how ideologies mean different things, not only over time, because concepts and ideologies are evolving constantly. I don't know if that's part of the spontaneous order or something like that. Um, could be. But um, but also how when you when you think about like geographically speaking, we can also have that. So can we say that trying to define ideologies is actually a mess like something very very complicated like when you when you wrote the the pocket guy um related to to socialism like socialism can you apply all those ideas to the the like the definitions that other people have related to to socialism or like how, how do we do that how do we handle yeah. all this mess yeah, and one of the things we found is in America that, you know, thanks primarily to Bernie Sanders, that, you know, he tries to say, well, socialism just means what they have in Scandinavia, in, in Denmark. And then, the, you know, when he said that, the prime minister of Denmark said, no, 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 what we have is not socialism. It's a it's a, it's a welfare state, but with a free market. And, you know, he was actually quite adamant about that. I think he didn't want to scare off investors from Denmark. Uh, but, um, you know, so these, these, yeah, these terms get abused. And I think, our job sort of is to bring in that philosophical clarity by defining the basic principles. And I think that the idea of thinking about collectivism at collectivism versus individualism as a dividing line helps serve that clarifying role that, you know, nationalism is as much a collectivist idea as any other variation of socialism. The idea that the nation, the good of the nation as a whole, takes precedence over your rights, your freedom as an individual. The idea that you as an individual need to sacrifice for the greater good of the nation, for the greatness of, of your society. Now, how, how how do you see that playing out in, in the different variations? I know there's a lot of different things going on, that there's, a, there's elections going on in, 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 I think, in Argentina and various other places. How do you see that playing out in the kind of debate people are having because yeah i know that i know that the american terminology on all, all this is is a complete mess in need of fixing and i'm sure you're facing the same thing there yeah yeah and and it's it's even in latin america when you try to define socialism or or these ideas that populists have because that's another thing we don't have um 
we don't have rule of law in yeah. basically in all of our countries in, in Latin America. It's very difficult to find a country that respect uh, rule of law and limits to, to the government and something that prevents politicians to become populists. But then you get and then you then you go and see what's what's actually happening in, in the U.S. And I don't know, things like January 6th, for example, come yeah, to I was, mind. I was about and to I'm, say we're rapidly joining you. Is that a Latin Americanization of of uh, American politics, or or I mean, can we say something like that? Um, so then we maybe they, they then we can think um, is every single country vaccinated against populism or against this collectivist ideas that that then go and destroy. Um, rule of law and destroy uh, democracy or liberal democracy. Um, even when you see countries like like Hungary with, with populists like, like Viktor Orban, um, a, a, a politician that basically infiltrated the, the European Union, um, you know, linked to, to Vladimir Putin. So again, he talks uh, and he, rep he he represents, or at least that, that that that's what he says. He he defends the concept of um, illiberal democracy, right? He, so again, they play with terms constantly, constantly playing with 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 concepts and 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 terms, and trying to adapt those to to their you know their specific um, moments. So when you get to see. Um, different countries in, in, in Latin America, even now that we have elections in, in, in Argentina uh, on Sunday, I mean, it's always the same. It's like a don't, don't you have a Don't you have a supposedly libertarian candidate there? Supposed to be a libertarian candidate, but then you go and see his ideas um, and, and the things that he proposes and, and the way that he he, he proposes um, those things. And then you see it's, again, uh, another right-wing populist uh, messiah that, 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 you know, he promises things that, that we know that he cannot do. Um, and even, even when, when it comes to, to dollarizing the economy, he proposes a, a dollarization of the economy, but, but we don't have dollars in Argentina. That's another big problem. I mean, you cannot implement the dollar um, in, in a country, in an economy, if you don't have dollars. I mean, you cannot replace a peso if you don't have dollars to do that. So again, people believe that today they have 100 pesos and if he dollarizes the economy, they're going to have $100. So he plays a little bit with that. So again, all about promises in, 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 in a populist way of uh doing politics so i think we need to be very very careful when it comes to this kind of 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 politicians you know um mm -hmm. and it's something that we have in latin america and we know in latin america because that's that's how it works <laughs> everywhere in, in our region um but now that i see some you know little things like latin americanization of of american politics and that that concerns me a lot i mean because I mean, even even the United States, it's a it's a concept, and then you get to see politicians and, and populists saying, I mean, destroying the concept of of the United States in the name of 
um, a supposedly defense of, of, of the United States. So, yeah. well, yeah. actually, that, that connects actually to there's a, some questions popping up at the chat here. Do you mind if I go ahead and take those, Lawrence? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, well, there's one I think specifically that connects to this, which is basically what's the difference between populism or sorry, sorry, between nationalism and patriotism? And I think in American, I'm going to give a quick, uh, Antonella to weigh in on this in a second, but I, my quick take on that is especially in an American context, right? Nationalism and patriotism, the the idea that yes, we do have a national identity, but in America, the contradiction here or the the quandary is our national identity is an idea, right? It's, it's, it's a principle. It's not just a group of people. It's not just a sort of collective good of a group of people. It's also, this is a country founded on individual rights and individual liberty. So there can be no concept of a national identity in America or of patriotism in America that doesn't take that into account. And I, I, I just published, um, recently a book review of Patrick Deneen's um, book uh, uh, called Regime Change, which is his sort of nationalist agenda for what we what replaces um, what re what should replace liberalism. And he, he's using liberalism the way political philosophers use it, the way it's used it everywhere else in the world except in American politics, meaning a pro-freedom system, you know, a free country. And he says, See, we, we shouldn't have a society defined around freedom he says it should be defined around something else so this, this is his attempt to say the something else but throughout it he's saying all these things that that make it clear that what he actually is trying to do is is eliminate america's actual national identity right so he's and, and he's trying to make it in america into a country in which you know the individual is helpless the individual is um looking for guidance from above and uh, I, I pointed out that he, he frequently quotes Alexis de Tocqueville, which is a French writer who came to America in 1832, wrote the famous book Democracy in America, describing what the American system was like. And Tocqueville writes about how, oh, the American's a total individualist. He's uh, uh, an innovator. He he doesn't believe in authority at all. And it's everything's complete opposite of what Patrick Deneen is talking about. And that's sort of the weird contradiction we have in America with nationalism, where you have the nationalists, quote unquote nationalists, appealing to America's national identity, but they want the America's national identity to be the exact opposite of what it has been you know, since its founding or probably since before its founding. Um, and so uh, that I think highlights the idea that nationalism or patriotism is not the same thing. That that nationalism as is being used by by in this collectivist sense of the subordination of the individual to the greater good of the nation is actually different from the idea of a national identity or of patriotism. Because in America we have a long tradition of a national identity and patriotism that are individualist and that are, are based on individual rights and you know these sort of cantankerous independent uh minded people that we have so i think that sort of shines a light on that difference mm -hmm. now i'm not sure how much that applies in a latin american context that might be a harder <laughs> a harder thing to sell mm -hmm. well uh, before before going uh to to latin america maybe i wanted to ask you like um like would you say that that patriotism can become nationalism very, very easily? Like, how do we prevent patriotism to become nationalism? Well, I think that the way you prevent it is you have to have a clear idea of what it is that, what are the principles that your country stands for? And that's, I think, it, what's somewhat unique in an American context is we are a country founded on, a, on an idea. 
which is, you know, normally it's a people or it's a place, right? And now Latin America is different because it was settled by, you know, and and, and the, the lines were drawn and the the the, uh, the countries were founded more recently. So, you know, if we're talking about France, right? France is a country with a language and an, eth- an ethnicity. And now actually I picked a bad example, didn't I? Because France also does have, they have the French Revolution. They had mm-hmm. certain principles. They were founded on liberté, égalité, fraternité, right? So, and France is actually more like America. It's sort of a comp, it's somewhere in between a lot of European countries in America in having an ethnic identity and a language, especially they're very big on the language, but also having certain ideals and idea, a view of government and a view of the relationship of the individual to society as something that, you know, so they have certain ideas that are part of their, a crucial part of their national identity. So I'm, I'm thinking that, I mean, if we, if we say that this, of course, these countries and even countries like the United States are founded on, on an idea, right? Mm-hmm. But ideas change as we were, <laughs> we were seeing at, at the beginning, like how concepts and ideas are permanently changing and, and mutating and evolving. Um, then countries and, and even politics should adapt to those um, changes or to those original changes. And, and does that defines the the future of, of, of a country? Like, how do you prevent that original idea um, not to become something toxic? Um, and, and, and maybe I'm trying to think about, you know, an open culture, uh, letting other people you know maybe maybe i can relate that to open objectivism right um how how do you keep uh an idea um or how how do you prevent an idea to become something toxic something that 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 is rigid something that cannot change and and you do that when you when you open the door when you open the door to people you know creating and innovating and adding new ideas and keep exploring a philosophy. Um, so, yeah, I, don't know. I think I think in America we have politically this, at least, is that the the idea of political freedom and of uh, freedom of speech and the the ability of people to debate uh, thing to debate any and every idea that has led to this dynamic dynamism and, and to adaptation and evolution in the American system that we can now, sometimes that means you have people trying to overthrow the existing ideas on which America was founded. And given that I think those ideas were terrific, we, we shouldn't be doing that, but you have had people come in and refine them and change them and expand them. So, I mean, you know, we have our in America, we've had our conflicts over like, slavery and 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 civil rights but also one thing i i kind of realized just recently is there's lots of things um like freedom of speech was has been interpreted far more widely and far more uh effectively in the 20th century and even into the early 21st century in, in i'm talking about actual court cases and things like that freedom of speech has been applied far more broadly than it actually was uh before or you know the things like um, outlawing homosexual, you know, legalize homosexuality being legal, the not not having homosexuals being legally persecuted, 
the legal precedence for that was overturned to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003. So it's like not even in the last century, but in this century, as recently as that. So the idea of expanding the notions of individual rights and of individual freedom, that's definitely been part of the sort of dynamism and the ferment of, of the American system. But I think it's also the reason why you have to have this base level of liberalism in the correct sense of freedom of and freedom of speech and freedom of debate and political freedom so that you can uh instead of freedom being you know whoever's in charge wh whoever's in a position of dominance in, in 1776 you know, is there is in that position forever that we're able to you know take on expanded ideas and and adapt with uh the growth of the country mm -hmm. well and and I don't know if I'm moving somewhere else with with this maybe question or 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 just idea um but it makes me connect you you were saying like when you go to American history um history of the US you see slavery you see many things that that were not right and even when you see the founding fathers' ideas, and when they—I mean, you see it, Thomas Jefferson and, and the concept of of you know individualism and you know respecting other people's rights and 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 liberty and life and the pursuit of happiness—and they didn't get to see this problem. They didn't get to see the problem with with um, with slavery, right? And it it makes me you know, question, like, because it, it's, there's probably something, but what are the things that we are not seeing right now right. that are not okay? Um, and that probably in 50 years or in 100 years, we're going to be like, wow, how <laughs> come we didn't realize that that was an issue? So always trying to focus on the things that many people attacked in a, in, yes. a, in a specific period of time through history and how those things evolve and, and you get people to adapt to changes because people, of course, I mean, they're afraid of changes. Um, that's part of, of, of being a human, right? You always try mm -hmm. to, to attach to safe things, to uh, security related to, you know, things that are not going to change, so I'm okay. It should. It won't be a problem if if anything changes. I'm gonna be okay. So being afraid of changes, um, and again, how how do we connect those concepts and and those ideas to things like like again nationalism, nationalism, you know, being protected, having a nation protected by a person, yeah. by a populist, by a messiah, and then you add another condiment, then you add uh, religion, and then you make the the state take and make decisions through um, a, a, a religious, you know, uh, land or something. So that's something that is actually happening a lot in Latin America. And even when, when it comes to this global trend related to the right wing movements um, that, again, you see many people trying to um, get together power and religion again. When you see that the founding fathers or, or even the idea of classical liberalism or or even when it comes to objectivism the the the, the core the, the the basis was to separate religion from the state 
So we see many people now trying to get those two things united again, and even in the name of liberty, right? And even mm -hmm. in the name of democracy and other and other things. So how 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 do you connect that, or what can you say about all those those things? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Actually, I want to I want to move on to something very specifically about that that we hadn't planned to talk about, but it just happened very recently. Uh, but first, I want to just there's a I see some questions popping up in the chat, and I want to take on one or two here. There, somebody talks about how how can a free society based on open ideas handle new immigrants who come in with radically different ideas? Well, I think it's an American context kind of a nationalist talking point, right? The, the or, or anti-immigration talking point that, oh, we're going to have these radicals coming in. Now, the funny thing, of course, is that, you know, 120 years ago, they were saying we can't have these Eastern Europeans coming in because they're going to import socialism. That was a real major talking point in the late 19th, early 20th century, that it was the Euro Eastern Europeans were going to come in here and support and and make this America a socialist country, and you know here I am, you know the Eastern of Eastern European one of the 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 descendant of these Eastern European immigrants uh, arguing for for individualism and capitalism. So it's a bit of a misnomer that you you're going to have this this dangerous influx of outsiders. And also when I look at American history, some of the worst ideas in American history came from. So for example, right here in Virginia, uh, a, a guy named Woodrow Wilson became president. And he was a guy who really turned America away from classical liberal, or liberal excuse me, classical liberalism toward what was called progressivism at the time, uh, and you know, a very collectivist uh, idea, very much state management from the top down. He was the guy who really brought that into American politics. So he was a guy named Wilson from Virginia, who was you know totally from you know old uh, English settlers in in the old Dominion here. Uh, right now, it was, you know, if you go to a Bernie Sanders rally, you're not going to see a bunch of you know Mexicans there. You're going to see a bunch of old white guys with names with English, really boring English names like Sanders. Uh, so again, it's a bit of a, I think of a canard that oh, our problem is immigrants. Our problem is not immigrants. Our problem is you know the people who are here, including people who've been here for for many generations, and it's the ideas that uh, are being the collectivist ideas that have infiltrated this country a very long time ago. Um, and I, th I think, you know, that that it, it's it gets very hard, much harder, especially when you, you know, in our country like Argentina, that is uh, is made of immigrants of as much as America is. Um, uh, now, I don't know if this is true, but somebody once I once heard somebody say an Argentinian is a fr um, an Italian who speaks Spanish and thinks he's French. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, that that there were a huge number of Europeans came to Argentina uh, and formed the, the society there. So every society is sort of an amalgamation of different people who have come in at different times, but has to be balanced together by some kind of ideas. And we have to constantly be open to refinements of those ideas, but focused on trying to clarify what those issues are now. Um, unless you and I'll have something to add about that, about uh, about Argentinians. Um, I wanted to go, you mentioned religion. And so one of the other pieces of news that just came across my the, my transom of, I think it was Sunday night, is uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a famous sort of apostate from Islam, uh, who, who uh, wrote a piece over the weekend talking about why she has converted to Christianity. 
And this caused a lot of stir and, and, and it caused a lot of stir because she was very much associated with the sort of the new atheists and the uh, atheism as an answer to the, you know, the, she'd been raised in an environment in Somalia of, of religious fanaticism, a Muslim religious fanaticism. And she had rejected that and then, you know, embraced the European atheists as an answer to the the Muslim fanaticism. And now she's saying, oh, no, I've, I've switched over to Christianity, which is going to be the answer to wokeness. And uh, it struck me that that's part of this sort of trend that we're being offered, that, oh, the only answer to the far left, the threat of the far left, is we have to go to the right, to the nationalists, and we have to embrace religion. And I don't know if anybody's had a chance to look at that particular thing yet, because it's very new. Uh, but what struck me about it, and, and several people mentioned this, is she has a whole article about why she's converted to Christianity. And in it, there's no reference to a very important figure in Christianity, Jesus Christ, right? So the idea of you know Jesus and of the, the importance of Jesus, the importance of the actual religious doctrines doesn't show up at all in 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 her article. It's really, there's a phenomenon I'm calling, uh, I've, I've been thinking of that I, I sort of call the culture war Christian. And that is that they're not really all that concerned about Christianity or its doctrines. They just want to have a side, a unified block to fight the culture war. And so they adopt Christianity as sort of a bludgeon against uh, against the left, but without so much concern for what its actual doctrines are. They just want something that will be a thing they can cite to defend the West or you know the ideals of the West without really questioning the theology of or the underlying philosophy of it too deeply mm -hmm. i don't know if you've observed the same phenomenon yeah yeah i'm I'm even thinking about the concept of of, of the cultural war right and in <laughs> in again how this concept is also used sometimes um and it's very tricky i think because a culture is a no, another again, another spontaneous order like the market, right. like language. It's something that you don't wake up one day and are like and go like I'm gonna create culture today. And if you have to create that, then it's not culture, right? It's something that something different. So when you use, I mean, when people use culture um, and link culture to war, and war is a you know a, a military concept. Isn't that a, a contradiction? A contradiction in terms um, mixing these two um, concepts in the name of uh, defense of uh, a kind of a Western civilization, and isn't that again an argument to impose some specific values again many times related to religion or or religious views and we're not saying that you cannot you know believing anything that you want i mean you can profess your religion and be religious and if that works for someone that's totally fine because freedom of religious of religion has been you know again uh, the the another very important liberty um that even created this concept or idea of the United States. So again, um, when we when we see many people using this kind of terms in, in this culture war, that also takes me to another concept, which is the, the, the I don't know if I'm saying it right, but, but the right to offend mm -hmm. um, other people, which is something that we listen a lot when it comes to the 
to the to these right wing leaders. And I think many times people, um, like, at some point, I don't know if misunderstand, but maybe confuse freedom of speech with with bullying or with this idea of the right to offend other people. And sometimes we think that an offense is only like this idea of violence or, or offense. Sometimes people think that it's only physical violence or physical offense. Like, don't don't take my stuff, yeah. don't take my property, don't don't hurt me, don't hurt other people, don't take your stuff. But what what happened with another type of offenses? Um, are we lacking empathy? I don't know. I, I always try to bring, you know, this side because yeah. you're, um, you know, emotion, in, in, emotional intelligence is also important, you know, social learning of, of, of the term of, of some specific things. But then we see this right to offend that many people use and talk about. And, and even religious people, many people that, that have a religion and, 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 and profess a religion, then they go and use this concept of the, the right to, to offend. And it's a new, um, you know, it's something that we should add, uh, you know, offending people. Is that a new mandate, mandate uh, you know? Um, yeah, so that, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, the right to offend, I know the, the origins of that were actually on the more on the left than the right. And it was on the it was the idea that I do think that that you have to have a right to offend, because if you if if anybody being offended by you is a reason to censor you, then you don't have freedom of speech. You know, freedom of speech is tested when it offends people, when people get when it makes people angry. The, the right to say something people agree with is not really under contention. What's under contention is the right to say something that people disagree with or think is beyond the pale. But I do agree that that there has been something that happens. In, in trying to push, you know, promote this right to offend. And, and I think it's happened more on the right these days than on the left, at least in America, that the right to offend has also become the mandate to offend. You know, you're not really protecting your freedom unless you're going out and deliberately offending people <laughs> and, and it's being as repellent as possible. I think you know, that and that's sort of that that's what makes you tough. That's what makes you a fighter. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I so like the right to offend has become the mandate to offend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what you're what you're getting at. But um, and even even morality, I mean, when it comes to morality, morality evolves also. So well, we, don't, we don't do the same jokes uh, that we used to do 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago. And again, it's because now we see that some things are not I mean, that the things that we thought that were right were actually bullying, for example. Yeah. Right. So so again, trying to think about the things that that we are not actually seeing right now. Yeah. That are, so, that are but there's there's something you said a minute ago that I really thought was interesting, which is that culture and war are like you know, they, the words don't belong together. They belong in totally different realms. You said nobody goes out and says I'm going to create culture. Well, in a way you do might go out and say you're going to create culture. And the way you would create culture would be, I'm going to go make something. I'm going to make, uh, build a building. I'm going to make a work, paint a work of, I'm going to paint a painting. I'm going to, you know, write a play. I'm going to write a song. That mm -hmm. That's what making culture is, is, you know, whole, but it, you said it's, it's, it's emergent, spontaneous order. It's a bunch of people going out and creating things to express their view of the world. 
and uh, making art and ideas and then sending that out to other people who accept it or reject it or argue about it and debate it. And that's how culture is made. And I would think that the important point is that that phenomenon is so totally opposite from that of a war or a conflict. And so I think you know, the problem we have is we tried to make that into war and conflict and everybody, you know, everything that 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 you do that to make a, everything you do to make a culture that I don't like is something that has to be expunged or anything somebody else is doing to make a culture that impinges upon me has, you know, is 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 it's woke and it's destroying our traditional way. And so therefore it has to be stopped. And uh, sort of I have this longstanding thing that my my plan for the culture war is that culture should win. That that you know, if you have an idea of the way things should be, and of the 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 right the way people should live, the kind of art they should be viewing or 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 or, or enjoying, then go make it right. And and you know, I like to say that the culture war. You know, if you went back to five hundred years ago, you know, the culture war would have been well, Florence builds a cathedral and they put up Michelangelo's David, and then. The church back in Rome, they feel threatened, and so they build, you know, the Sistine Chapel, and <laughs> and and so you know you have a culture war that is people building things and making things and competing for who could build the best and the greatest thing. Yeah, and it's interesting how, again, we go back to the beginning, um, how ideas and concepts and terms are constantly changing and evolving, and how people how. Something can mean one thing in a country and to uh, an ideology or whatever. But even the concept of culture war, you know, created or, or developed by, by Antonio Gramsci. Um, now we see people from the right using a, 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 you know, very lefty or very kind of communist uh, concept because it was developed by, by Antonio Gramsci who talked about the... Um, you know how how you need to change culture and and through culture you're gonna change a country and and you gotta you know take education and take culture and so again yeah and by the way let's put a little perspective on that so Gramsci was a Marxist but Mar the traditional Marxist idea was because of the material conditions of the country, because of the relationships to the means of production, the revolution will naturally just happen on its own and culture will just follow. Exactly. And Gramsci, and then there was a split of Gramsci comes along in the early 20th century. There's a split of saying, well, look, the revolution is not happening inevitably because of these material factors. So we need to have a culture war to change the culture and, and infiltrate the institutions and infiltrate the schools and the art and, and art. And then that will make the revolution happen. And of course, it still didn't happen. <laughs> and, and isn't that something that the nationalists from the left and the right are actually doing? Like yeah. right now, when you see politics or when you see these global trends, isn't yeah. that like, their main argument? Like trying to change or give this or battle this this war, um, this cultural war, uh, yeah. to change things? Yeah, in, then, in, Amer in America, there was a guy named uh, Andrew Breitbart who... Uh, unfortunately, passed away very young, but he had the statement that uh, politics is downstream of culture, which is, you know, it's a really great insight. It's something similar to what Ayn Rand had said about how, you know, a nation's ideas determine what happens. So, but a lot of people, I think, interpret it as, oh, well, then 
we should fight our political battles in the realm of culture. Yeah, so we should yeah. make you know if if politics is downstream from culture, if if what people the new movie version of The Little Mermaid, and we have to all take that over as a tomorrow in a Twitter space. Uh, but it's a big event that happened uh, in over in the last couple of weeks is uh, uh, Mark Andreessen, who long ago uh, wrote one of the for the program for one of the first web browsers, sort of a father of the World Wide Web. Uh, came out with something called a techno-optimist manifesto. And I think this is an interesting sort of contrast to everything else we're talking about, the rise of nationalism and the uh, uh, all the political and the culture war and all these political battles that over and above that, you know, in politics, the frustrating thing about politics is that progress doesn't tend to occur. We all end up arguing the same things over and over again and not really making a lot of a lot of forward motion. But in the realm of technology, progress does occur. And so he... Mark Andreessen was making this case for a techno-optimist manifesto, the idea that we should be unleashing more progress and more technological change and growth and uh, and embracing that and 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 getting some of the barriers, the, the cultural and political barriers to that out of the way. And I, I just I love the now in, in I don't know if you've seen this, but in there, there's some things that are clearly. This guy's been influenced by Ayn Rand. That is a clear objectivist influence, um, including these talks about we need to have the the romance of industry and the the eros of the of the railroad. And I'm like, well, you know, we're talking about ro the romance of the industry as represented in railroads. This is a guy who's clearly read Atlas Shrugged, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I think there's I love this idea of that we have a debate over this, we have a discussion of over this. Um, and uh, uh, that we're actually debating this question of how can we create more? You know, this is sort of this is related to that cult, what I said about the culture war that you know the culture war should be about going out and creating things, and this idea also that instead of having these debates over how we distribute wealth or what what punitive uh, um, duty uh, import taxes we put on things and 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 who should we punish, which is a lot of the, what the political debate is about these days having a debate about what should we create and who should we be creating should we be building more should we be making building nuclear power plants and 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 in pursuing technological progress in these other ways mm -hmm. well that that makes that makes me think about a book um by Matt Ridley how innovation yeah. works it's another book that i really like that is i think at some point related to to this or even open oh, yeah. by by Johan Norberg um and and when you when you go and see um different countries in latin america argentina for example if you want to open a business if you want to open a company it will probably take you probably nine months to do that um and then you have to face bureaucracy regulations well taxes of course we have one of the highest rates of uh, taxation rates in, in in basically the entire world so we keep demonizing business we keep demonizing wealth uh the entrepreneur it's like evil you know being an entrepreneur is, is is a is a bad word in 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 argentina or or in in, in different countries from latin america i mean even in the united states um but then i go and and and, and i mean if we wonder why we don't have all the the innovation i mean in repressed econ economically repressed countries why we don't see all that the, the innovation or all, all the, the the technological solutions or new ideas coming up uh in those countries then it's because you are you know oppressing people uh, if it's because you are not letting 
entrepreneurs and 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 people with great ideas going and 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 getting those ideas in, into into action right so i don't know opening a company in a in a garage for example is 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 not you know is not which which, which famously is what what Steve Jobs and and and, exactly. and Wozniak were doing uh starting Apple yeah and and uh and then that's all yeah that's the big we're missing i'm thinking about all the things that we are missing in in and we have been missing in the in, yeah. in the entire history um because of this because of having governments regulating and 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 going with this wealth yeah. distribution thing um so and, and, and traditionally the solution to this in i know hernando soto who has written a lot about this the peruvian economist uh, mm -hmm. has talked about traditionally the solution is when you make it so difficult to oh, to start a company people go ahead and start companies anyway they just do it illegally you know so you end up with a black market economy you end up without the rule of law without the protection for property rights and so the the growth of these sort of informal the they call it the informal economy the growth of this black market economy is always stunted by the fact that you cannot do things with the legal protections and with the enforcement of contracts and with the secure property rights that you would have otherwise. But that's what happens when you put this giant regulation. It's not that, oh, all economic activity will be regulated. It's like, no, people will go do things outside of the legal system because they have to. There's no other way to, to live. But it will be without the protections and without the support uh, and without the, the rule of law that's necessary for those companies to be able to grow and become larger and, and expand. Mm -hmm. And again, you lose, you lose out on that innovation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's been a common Latin American problem. It's also African problem. They call it, I think uh, a French term system D they call it a uh, system uh, de la de, de which means the system of the untanglers. But it was this idea of, you know, the, the, the fixer, the untangler, the person who, who skirts the law and does something in the black market. That's the system that's used to actually get most things done in a lot of African economies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for example, I think um, how you see, I don't know, Nord the Nordic countries or even the United States, you see many people, many entrepreneurs, um, many people creating, innovating and, and creating things that, that actually change our lives, you know, for good. Um, and then you go to countries in Latin America, like Venezuela, and maybe you have a lot of people with great ideas that can actually change the world, but I mean, they don't have anything to eat tonight. Yeah. So if we can do something to change that reality, then we'll probably be able to create, um, you know, wealth and, and innovation and, and progress at the end of the day. So yeah. So it's not because we don't have talent or we don't have talented people. It's because yeah. we have big governments, again, not letting that people, uh, those people creating. Uh, well, well and, 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 yeah, yeah. In, in America, I think part of what you see here, too, is you have lots of people with great ideas and they tend to devote those ideas towards building an app, right? Mm -hmm. you know, doing something on doing something digital rather than something physical, because if you want to build something physically, you know, you have suddenly you're neck deep in regulation, whereas building an app is something you can just have a couple of guys sit around in an office and there's it, it is a relatively unregulated thing. But it, it pushes our economy more into the realm of do things digitally rather than do things, in, in, you know, build things in the physical world. Um, now, somebody mentioned on this the thing about the Techno Optimist Manifesto uh, does it not really address the terror some have towards AI technologies. 
Well, yes, but people have a terror towards nuclear energy, which is one of the safest forms of energy and safest, most effective, most abundant forms of energy ever developed. And I think that's sort of his point is that a lot of the scaremongering on AI, AI that's going on right now, which I don't buy into, you know, it's, it's based on watching James Cameron movies and watching robots kill people on TV rather than and, and and it's but it's the same thing that's been done for every single technology that's come before from uh uh from nuclear to uh i mean nuclear and uh uh medical technologies i mean they've a lot of biotechnology you look at what happened we we developed a vaccine for covid in record time we developed a, a, a relatively effective vaccine and people said, oh, mRNA is going to alter your genes and cause all sorts of horrible, you know, these very science fiction-y scenarios about all the bad things mRNA is going to do to you. It didn't do any of that. It, it helped, you know, helped end the uh, the pandemic much earlier than it would have otherwise. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, the scaremongering, uh, the, the terror people have of AI is more likely because they've been watching movies uh, about, you know, where our sole model of, what artificial intelligence or robotics would look like is the Terminator. And it, it skews people against that. But um, I want to turn back to what something said in the, in, in the techno optimistic manifesto, which is this idea of, um, you know, the, the, I think it gets onto this idea of the transformative power of innovation and the ability. Oh, yeah. Here's what I was, so I saw some of the criticisms of the Techno Optimist Manifesto were very much along the lines of, oh, but if we had this Techno Optimist Society, we, we, what about we'd have to, we have we still have to have these regulations. We still have to have the welfare state. It was all sorts of things that, you know, it was a fear. And it wasn't just a fear of the bad uh, impact. You know, it wasn't just a fear of, James Cameron's killer robots coming to get us. It was also this fear of, it's this sense that people have of being more afraid that uh, of the bad side, the downside, more afraid that change would disrupt their, their lives, being more afraid of that than they were motivated by the positive aspect of all the new technologies, all the new wealth, all the new innovation we could have. So that that fear of I won't be protected, or somebody else might make money, or you know some uh, the world might change too rapidly, and I I'm afraid of that that fear of change. That that is really what's holding people back, and I see that in the reactions to the techno optimist manifesto of people saying, oh, but you can't, you know, we have to have this protection and that control and this regulation over here, and how could you possibly change that? And that it, it's almost like it's that idea of, of being motivated by fear versus being motivated by the desire to create. Mm -hmm. And it's that it's that motivation by fear that is it, in so many issues across so many things is holding us back in politics and in technology uh, and, in, and in culture and in the culture wars, rather than the emphasis being on the the positive motivation of going out there and seeing what we can create. I like I love how we connected everything <laughs> to to you know to this I mean to fear at the end of the yeah. day it's about fear and getting rid of that and and promoting a, a you know a culture of of innovation of of openness um and you talked about the importance of emotions the it's about love versus fear yeah, the love exactly. of creation the love of uh the love of life versus 100%. the fear 100%
I always like it when we can wrap things together at the <laughs> end like that. And I, without even planning it, well, I didn't yeah, even plan right? it. It just, but it's spontaneous order. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. That's a great way to uh, end things off here for tonight. But uh, Rob Antonella, I want to thank you both again for doing this really interesting stuff. I hope everyone who's watching this, uh, a lot of people had questions, but luckily, Rob, you were on point to uh, answer them as uh, uh, going along to keep the flow going. So again, everyone who is watching, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this. Please extend your thanks to Rob and Antonella for doing this. And if you enjoyed this video and would like to see more conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Atlas Society. Now, uh, be sure to join us tomorrow on Twitter Spaces, where our senior scholars Stephen Hicks and Richard Salzman will be doing an hour-long talk only on the Techno-Optimist Manifesto, so you'll have another opportunity to dive even further in, or check out the links for uh, links to Rob's articles on this very subject. And then be sure to join us again next week on the Atlas Society Ask, when our CEO, Jennifer Grossman, will be interviewing author Frank Minitner about his book, Future of the Gun. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you all again soon.